Welcome to this episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Joe De Silva, founder, CEO, and CSO of PNC Pharma. I'm also joined by Will Boyko, who's also a consultant pharmacist with PNC Pharma. Their work is aimed at transforming the way pharmacists approach pharmaceutical liquid compounding. We will also hear about their journey of taking CortezRx from an idea all the way to production and marketing. Well, I am pleased to be joined today by Joe De Silva and Will Boyko from PNC Pharma. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, I would love to just start by hearing a little bit about each of your stories. How did you end up being in the pharmacy profession? So, Joe, let's start with you. Well, that goes back uh, all the way to high school. So, I had an interest in two sectors. One was chemistry, which I really liked a lot, and I was also interested in healthcare. So pharmacy seemed to be the appropriate blend of those two, chemistry and healthcare. And so I, ever since uh, probably eighth or ninth grade, that was my target. Uh, But I went into industrial pharmacy, so I learned a lot about not only pharmacy, but engineering as well, and then got a PhD in pharmaceutics, and went into research and development in pharma, in the pharmaceutical industry. So that's how I wound up in the profession. So. Okay, Will, what about you? Yeah, thank you. So I come by my interest, quite honestly. Um, my dad is a microbiologist and my mom is a nurse, and I've always grown up with a um, an interest in science and biology, chemistry, and I remember going to the lab with my dad all the time and just being fascinated by uh, the inner workings of the lab, the tests he was doing, and how he would interact with all the other healthcare professions. Uh, It wasn't until actually college that I really began an appreciation of how chemical entities, uh, both naturally and synthesized, could be used to treat human disease and uh, optimize care of health. Um, and that kind of led me to my interest in pharmacy, and that's kind of how I joined the profession initially. Okay, and it's my understanding, Will, that you also have been involved in compounding pharmacy specifically. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So part of part of my world has involved um, owning a, a, a pharmacy that had a compounding component to it and then growing that compounding component within that pharmacy. So, um, yeah, so it, it's been a, a real passion of mine. Yeah, and Joe, I'd love to hear a bit more about your experiences before you started with PNC Pharma. So after I came out of uh, graduate school, I had a degree, as I said, in pharmaceutics, I went to Big Pharma. So I started at Pfizer. I worked in the R&D department in the formulation development group. And I was very fortunate um, in Pfizer and all the places I worked since I got to do two things. One is the composition of a formulation and the other is the manufacturing process. So I've interacted with chemists, I've interacted with process engineers, chemical engineers who are experts in uh, liquid uh, handling, many, many things that have helped me do what I'm doing today. So I've kind of brought all that together. So I started at Pfizer. I worked in the liquid formulation group, uh, specifically on things like oral liquids, ophthalmics, injectables. 
I also got the chance to run the clinical supplies manufacturing group for sterile products. I moved uh, from there to Merck in Philadelphia, um, expanded my remit. Uh, one of the good things I got at Merck was the ability to work on vaccines and biologicals, which is a little bit more complicated than the small molecules that I worked at at Pfizer. And I wound up my career at Sanofi, where I was the head of the formulation development group in the U.S., and working on pretty much all of the dosage forms, tablets, capsules, uh, transdermals, injectables, oral liquids, etc. So, uh, as I said, I have been very fortunate. Uh, I have been able to get a cross-fertilization of different types of technology, different types of sciences, etc., that has allowed me to do what I'm doing today. So I'm curious then, when did you first get that itch to be an entrepreneur and start your own venture? Uh, that goes back to 1993. And the reason I know that date very well is digging through my f files, the basement to clean up one day, I found a place where uh, a, a note showing that I'd gone to an entrepreneurial conference in 1993 and I'd completely forgotten about it. <laughs> but but R&D... People in R&D generally always like to do innovation. You know, That's part of it. Not all of us want to do it on our own, which is when you become an entrepreneur, but we're always doing it as part of a group. So somewhere in my background, I wanted to do that. And as in many things in life, there are coincidences that make you do something. And finally, in 2000, I used to work at Sanofi in Philadelphia, and they closed that location and moved us to Northern Jersey, I could not move because my kids were in middle school and elementary school. I had told my wife many, many times I wanted to be an entrepreneur. She reminded me that I better not take another job in large pharma because I'd never do that. And so I finally took the plunge and uh, started my own company, and here we are. Great. So how did PNC Pharma come to be then? And... Uh when did you first get the idea for your product of Cortetarx? That's a interesting story. So if you are in pharmaceutical R&D, um, especially in the liquid formulation groups, very often you will get a call from hospital pharmacists and the call goes as such. Listen, I have this tablet that you guys developed. I have a person who has a NG tube and I need to make a liquid. Or... You get a call from a pediatric pharmacist who goes, Joe, I have a patient who weighs, you know, four pounds or five pounds, and I need to dose this to them, and I need to make a liquid. Can you tell me how to do this? Unfortunately, very often we can't. I can't divulge that information, so we give them the appropriate answer, whatever that is. My goal was that everything I had learned, as I said, from the people who had trained me and taught me, to take that information and see how I could allow pharmacists to do that both efficiently with making good products and in an easy fashion. So I was looking at my background, both in how to make a liquid and how to manufacture a liquid, and how could I take that and put that on a pharmacist bench. So when I tell you about Quartet Rx, the fundamental principle was that I didn't want a pharmacist to have to call me they could use our technology to do exactly that process. So. Okay, so uh, I want to turn to Will here. Sure. So uh, we know that 
compounding has been closely associated with the profession of pharmacy for many, many years. I mean, one of the enduring symbols of our profession is a mortar and pestle, right? Right. So uh, while pharmacists are highly skilled in compounding, there are some inherent risks associated with this manual process. So uh, what are your thoughts about that? Are there risks? And if so, what are they? Yeah, there certainly are. Um, I can basically break those risks down into five different groups. The first being, if anybody spent any time in compounding, we all know that it's labor-intensive. These prescriptions, these medications just aren't made very quickly. Uh, They take a lot of time, they take a lot of effort, and they take a lot of labor. Uh, That leads to two issues. Number one, it can uh, increase the time that it takes in order for somebody to get the medication that they need. And number two, it can... It, it leads to access issues because not every place makes these types of, of formulations. So sometimes these things need to be mailed. Sometimes people need to travel great distances to get them. Secondly, the way that I make something and the way you make something and the way Joe makes something may be a little bit different. So there's variation in the way that we dry grind or we use a mortar and pestle. And that leads to different particle sizes, uh, variations in the quality of our formulations we make, and that can lead to dose uniformity concerns. And we know that specifically at the extremes of age, very small differences can lead to large clinical consequences. Uh, Next, we look at cross-contamination. We do the best that we can in terms of cleaning the materials and the tools that we use, but we reuse them because we have to. So there is some potential for what I'm making now to get into something that's made later. So that's one risk. And then lastly, with the issue of USP 800 and protecting compounders from hazardous medications and all medications that we we make, we want to make sure that those making those compounds actually aren't inhaling or being exposed to those medications. Yeah, that's a, a great summary. Joe, how can technology be leveraged directly in the pharmacy to overcome some of these challenges? That, that's a great question because it tells you how Quartet Rx came about. So as I told you, I used to be involved in both formulation development and manufacturing processes. So if I had to make a suspension uh, in Pfizer or Merck, maybe 200 liters or 500 liters, I would use a certain process. I would have a tank and I would have an equipment called a very often a colloid mill. And a colloid mill would allow me to mix and mill and make fine uniform suspensions and then bottle them and send them off to the marketplace. So if you look at the inside of a colloid mill, right, you ask yourself the question, okay, a pharmacist is not going to make 200 liters. Pharmacist is not going to have a huge manufacturing facility and he has a bench. So the question becomes, how do I take that technology and make it available to the to the pharmacist. So you look inside a colloid mill, and there are two uh, abrasive surfaces, the rotor and stator, and one moves at a high speed, the other stays uh, static, and there's a gap, and you shoot your, uh, the material in between and cause it to mill and suspend and form uniform suspensions. So I for a long time was thinking about how do you make get that into a bottle. And it finally hit me that if I took the bottle and made a particular abrasive surface on the inside and I spun the bottle, I would form a vortex. And when the vortex 
took place, you would have that real wall, and then you'd have a force wall that developed because of the vortex, and you'd have a gap, just like the colloid mill. And in the gap, you could do your milling process. And that's the basics of the quartet RX. A bottle, abrasive surface, spun in a planetary uh, milling motion, a force wall, a real wall, a gap, and you mill in the process in the middle, and you can f- make really uniform suspensions out of that, just like you would make 200 gallons using a tank and a colloid mill. The beauty of that is uh, every colloid mill at the end of a process has to be taken apart, washed, cleaned, all the stuff. You're not going to throw out a colloid mill in a tank. But our bottles are basically designed to do the milling, do the compounding, be storage containers, dispensing containers, and at the end rinsed and recycled, and not recycled for more compounding, but for recycled as pl- plastic waste. So we've actually taken the colloid proce- mill process and made it a little better in terms of the way it's used. And now I can put it on a bench of a pharmacist and allow them to do the same sort of quality work that is done in a large factory. So if you are thinking about the use of technology, it's not the development of the new technology so much as you look at a principle and how to apply it to a need that is the key to the whole picture. Well, and if I've been to the Quartetorex website, and if you go there, uh, this is something that's really hard to, to describe in words. I think you've done a fantastic job, but I would encourage our listeners to, to visit their website and see how this actually works um, through that video. I think it really helps to, to understand that. So yeah, we have two. Uh, we have a video on there that describes the whole process, and in embedded in there is a clip that shows you the exact process that takes place when you take our bottle, you spin the bottle, and how the milling takes place. Yeah, so we would be more than welcome. Please do go there and and view the video. Will, what is the process of using the Cortex machine look like for a pharmacist? What are those steps to actually compound with? this device. Sure. Yeah. I think we've effectively with the Quartet RX technology and process, we've kind of been able to identify the non-valued steps in compounding, which do take up a lot of time and are labor intensive. So we've been able to take those out of the process and really boil down compounding for oral liquid formulations to a three-step process. And it is really as simple as taking the Quartet RX bottle putting your diluent and the medication into the bottle, whether that be tablets, capsule contents, active pharmaceutical ingredients or powders, and in some cases, whole capsules into the bottle, capping the bottle, placing that bottle in the Quartet RX device and running a certain cycle of time where the wet milling takes place, taking the bottle out, agitating it, inspecting it like you would do with any other compound, making sure that the proper label is on it, and then dispensing it or taking an aliquot or unit dosing it, um, taking out a lot of non-valued steps. So I have to pause for a second because I'm a pediatric pharmacist by training. So I heard you say something that really piqued my interest. Mm -hmm. 
I have spent my time making an oral compound that required me to empty the contents of 40 or 50 capsules into a, uh, into a mortar before we mixed it. So you said whole capsule. Did I hear you right about that? You did. Yes, I did say that. <laughs> okay. So, so I'd love to hear more about that. So you can take a whole capsule and place that into the bottle and you don't even have to worry about opening these. So what does that look like and how, how have you been successful with that? Yeah, so in certain circumstances, we have a handful of, of whole capsule compounding formulations currently right now that have been vetted, that have good stability data, um, chemical stability data. Uh, and basically, yeah, you no longer have to empty the contents of the capsule into the bottle. You just place the entire capsule into the bottle with your diluent um, that's called for in the formulation, and you run a cycle. We have two cycles on the quartet for wet milling uh, whole capsules. Uh, their longer duration cycles allow for buffering of the gelatin in the capsules to actually bring in water and be ripe for milling. Um, and some actually for larger capsules, such as hydroxyurea, where they're a little larger, uh, it takes a little bit more time to do that. So there's built-in hold times into one of our uh cycles in order to do that. So that's where some of the time efficiencies can be gained in doing some of these formulations like tacrolimus, hydroxyurea, zonisamide, uh, where you no longer have to do that. Now that's fantastic. You've got me sold already on that part. <laughs> so I've experienced it firsthand. So you've also mentioned a little bit about pharmacist and the impact that compounding has both on cost and, and time. So uh, I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more about how your solution impacts these two factors in pharmacy operations. So, so let's start with the timepiece. I'd love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on that. So the time is efficiency is gained in two ways. One is you can see it, like you just mentioned, right? You have to empty 40 capsules, you have to gown, you have to be, put on your hazmat suit, uh, then you do the compounding, then you have to collect the wastewater, you have to, all of those steps, right? They're gone. As Will described, you drop the capsules, you put the diluent, put in the machine, you're done. So there's obvious time savings. But what I tell people is, and this is again, I'm bringing my experience that I was trained in by engineers. So think about when you do manual compounding. You grind, you put liquid, you uh, levigate, then you have to transfer, rinse, get all the stuff, right? It's, it's a process that is broken up. It's not smooth, right? But think about using a quartet. If you had, say, let's do quartet machines. You start one, and while it's working, you prep the other one. And when that one's finished, you go back and forth, right? You, you gain work efficiency. And if you worked in a, in, in a manufacturing place, uh, engineers would do that, you know, they would make sure that when you're building that car, that the part that you needed, right, was close by and you bolted it without having to run down the, the line and get it. It's the same process. You would line up your tablets, you would line up your diluent, you'd line up your bottles, and then you'd go one bottle, next bottle, third bottle, you know. That's very difficult to do in manual compounding. You don't do that. So you're gaining time that is obvious, but you're also gaining time that is not obvious. The other thing is, and when we talk about hazardous compounding, you'll also gain not only time, but you will take away stress. People are usually, you know, when they're doing hazardous compounding, 
not, a pharmacist not is, is not usually cool, you know. They are mm-hmm. they are they are under stress, and this is another part that when you automate some things, you're looking to do that. And now two things come out of that, right? One, you automatically d- reduce the stress, but you also now eliminate mistakes and all that take place because of the stress. So. I always tell people the time efficiency gains there are obvious ones and then there are non-obvious ones and sometimes the non-obvious ones are more important than the obvious ones. Well, what about the cleanup steps? I think you mentioned that, right? Sure. I, if, if, to me it seems like if you're able to put your ingredients in a bottle and you pull the bottle out and all you do is agitate and ex- inspect it, that seems to be a time savings as well. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I do agree and I'll just I, kind of piggyback on what Joe uh, already said. Um, the, the cleanup part is a big, big part of this because there is no cleanup. We're not reusing things. You know, the bottle is meant to not only compound in, but store as well as dispense. If you're working in an outpatient setting, you can label that bottle appropriately, put in an adapter cap or a press and bottle adapter with an appropriate oral syringe and, and actually dispense that to your uh, patient or their caregiver. If you're working in an inpatient setting, you can aliquot from it. You can, you uh, unit dose from that, send that to the floor and, and however you, your department does that. Uh, so there is no cleanup. So you do save time with that. Um, we also need to me- mention that the time it takes to, for the quartet to run is totally unattended time. You push a button and you can walk away. Mm-hmm. So yep. there's a shift in, in, the, in the time that it takes to do these. It's still a similar amount of time, but you now have that time back to do something else in the department that may be just as valuable, if not more valuable, or something that you couldn't get to. So there's a time shift there for you. Yeah, I could see that being an advantage in a whole host of, of pharmacy settings. I'm curious, where have you seen the Quartz Header X machine being used most often? What types of pharmacies or settings? So our first entry was into pediatric pharmacies and hospitals. Um, which do the most compounding. We are now starting to see it go into more adult settings and things of that nature. The retail sector is still, we are still exploring that, but our our most, for the next year or two, our focus is on, on hospitals and hospital pharmacies. After that, we view several sectors, but one of the ones that we are most interested in is neurological compounding for patients with neurological diseases. So if you look at somebody who has a Parkinson's, for instance, right, not only is it important to have the right formula and all, but you want the right viscosity. And if you are got the potential to aspirate, you want to reduce the volume as much as possible. So there are things that we can do with our technology easily without having to add materials and stir and all that make it very easy to dose for a caregiver to a patient who has Parkinson's, et cetera. So our, as I said, initially uh, the hospitals, starting with pediatrics, going into general hospitals has been our push, but we are now going to look at these other sectors going forward. I, I believe, Will, you had mentioned the USP 800 guidelines that right. have become compendial here mm-hmm. recently. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, those are guidelines that are um, meant to 
guide pharmacists on how to handle hazardous compounds. So that can be like a chemotherapy agent for cancer or something that suppresses the immune system. So I'm curious if that's an area that you really um, have looked into. Joe, what do you think about using Cortetorex for hazardous compounding? Is there the potential to decrease exposure to even the compounding personnel by using this? Sure. So this is a really good uh, discussion of technology and its use. So when USB 800 is talked about, right, we talk about a problem of aerosolization. You have a powder, you're grinding it, and there's a potential for it to aerosolize and expose whoever is doing the process to the powder. But if you take a powder or a solid and put it inside a liquid and then train it in there, there is no potential of aerosolization. So if you know the way you aerosolize liquids is either use a pump, you know, when you do your the thing for dishwashing liquids and all, or you aerosolize it using propellants. You force it, right? So actually, to justify what we did, we went to the industry that has the most problem with aerosolization of powders. It's not us, it's the coal industry. Mm. If you have coal dust, the explosions, all of that is a huge problem. And the way you control, the best way to control coal dust is water misting. You mist it with water, and we use that as a justification. You can see how our process takes oncology compounds that are dangerous and trains them. But then we do several other things. They are in a bottle, it's a cap. The bottle's in a holder, another cap, and then the machine has a cap. But just to educate your um, your listeners, uh, what we also did, and this is a part of the technology development process, is if you are doing this well, you try to break the technology. You purposely try to see if it fails, right? So what we did to show that this technology works is we took dry powders and we put it in the bottles, we capped them, we spun them, we swabbed the outsides, and we showed that we don't get any egress, even when you're purposefully trying to break the technology. But when we do it in a liquid, especially if you're doing it, let's say you take a, a tablet you know, that is of an oncology compound, you put in a viscous liquid, and then you're milling it, aerosolization potential. If you ask a chemical engineer, they go, there's nothing to talk about. There's no aerosolization, <laughs> period, right? Yeah. So we look at it in two ways. So you have a problem, and you say the problem exists, and I'm going to control it. But the best way to say is, I'm going to get rid of the problem, and then I don't have to do anything more. Our approach has been not to have external controls, but to internally control the problem and eliminate it. And so one of the things we want to educate pharmacists, regulators and all, is on this process. And if I might expound on this a little bit, let me show you where this has extremely dramatic effects. So we'll mention hydroxyurea, right? So I'm gonna give you an example. If you live in a small town, say in the middle of Nebraska, and you have a child who has bad, bad, bad fortune cancer, and you need to get a hydroxyurea compounded, your local pharmacist is not going to be able to man up and put up all the external controls, hoods and all, that will allow them to compound with hydroxyurea. So your choices might be to drive 200 miles to a major city and pick it up, or have it delivered, which is adds cost. 
And in the middle of all that you have to do, you have to worry about this. So what we would like to do is do what is a healthcare scientist should do. You're going to take technology, you're going to adapt it properly, and you're going to allow that pharmacist in that small town to continue doing what they need to do, which is to compound those com- those oncology compounds and give to their patients. Sometimes, you know, when you look at the big picture, you don't see these little things, but we talked to one of our pharmacists in a hospital who does hydroxyurea compounding, and he told me it used to take them from getting a prescription to giving the patient a compounded formulation two days because they had to go to a special pharmacy and get it made. That has dropped now to less than two hours. So a patient walks in, and I never thought about it till I was at thinking of it later, and I thought I was very fortunate I never had to deal with this. But if you're a parent and you're dealing with this, think about it. You know, you're all the stuff you got, you've got to come back and drive back from wherever you are for two days, and now you don't have to do that. So for us, those little things make a big difference, and that's how you use technology to make things better for people. Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic example of, of that very idea, how yeah. a simple adoption of technology can make a drastic difference right. in the outcome for a patient or family. So I'm going to turn to Will here and ask you a question. So how have the two of you gone about determining what medication formulations to develop and validate using uh, your technology? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we've used a couple of different ways. Uh, when Quartet RX was first came out on the marketplace, uh, did some surveys, focus groups to find out what may be a need out there. Um, and that we came up with 15 different formulations, which are now in what we call our Maestro database. And that, and that basically uses Quartet, uses water as a diluent, and it excipient, sachet, uh, excipient sachets. Um, so that's one way we did that. The second way is when we uh, had that and went out into the marketplace, we began to understand that there are way more than 15 compounds people make Absolutely. and that people need, right? Yeah. So how, how do we bridge the gap then? So we, in our network of collaborators, we have collaborated quite closely with them to identify what those formulations are and then proceed to work with them to transfer their formulations that are tried and true, that are have been well-studied in the literature to being able to be used with Quartet RX. And I know that we're currently doing some formulation development together. Um, and so that's another aspect of that as well. Joe, I'm going to turn back to you and, and just ask, as you've been talking with pharmacists, what have the, been the biggest challenges for them when we think about incorporating a first-in-class new technology into operations? Yeah, this was something I learned the hard way. So if you're an R&D person, your natural tendency is to look for the new shiny technology and you know try it out and all. That just comes natural. But I now see, um, when you're a pharmacist, you have umpteen things on your to-do list. You have things, you know, managing uh, medication supplies, personnel, all the other stuff. What I have seen is trying to put a new technology in means stopping, learning, and then doing. Those are three steps, and each of those take time, and each of these take effort. What I've also learned is, and I've watched the people who have done this really well, and the, what they have, what they have 
done is they have taken the determined effort to identify somebody within their group who has those tendencies in a natural fashion to learn new things to be the champion and they've given them the time maybe a week or something to learn it properly and to adapt it and after they have done it the benefits have accrued tremendously then there are others who have never found that time and never found that person and they're still struggling trying to get it in and some of them finally just give up so i have this dichotomy i see people who have adapted it and are doing incredible like i told you about the person who the pharmacist who told me about the hydroxyurea he's been a shining example i mean if i could clone him and put him in every hospital pharmacy i would i mean he <laughs> yeah. he learns that and he knows how to do this but sometimes to fix a train you have to stop the train for a little while you can't fix it while it's running right and that's part of what we so when i talk to new collaborators people who are trying to use it that's what i say to them you you will get the benefits but you will have to take some time and you have to find somebody who's going to be a champion in the ranks you know and is going to learn it and then use it and that it is tough and i mean when you got lots of things going on you got physicians you know yelling at you to get their supplies in there's a, so many things pharmacists deal with i can understand it um doing that stopping and starting and learning takes some time but that's essential well i i think that's a great lesson for all of us to learn from yeah. when it comes to implementing something new that's great i'm curious to know what factors do you feel like have been most important in your success as an entrepreneur Ah. So I I used to get asked this question and I I had to stop and think about it but not anymore. I've actually thought about it quite a bit over the last several years. In entrepreneurship uh I used to com- if you can very often people compare it to things to sports, you know. This is kind of common. It's not a baseball game, it's not a basketball game and it's not a football game. It's what unfortunately it's like boxing. very often you are in the ring initially alone and the thing that i tell people is when you look at it from the outside it looks exciting and it is don't get me wrong but it also has its days on which you are down on the mat and the ability to get up and continue is is paramount it you it's not smarts it's not you know being wise it it's the people who know that because no entrepreneur most entrepreneurs will never tell you this they will tell you a smooth story like they got up one morning and they had an idea and the afternoon they had it on the market you know that doesn't happen you know they struggle through many many things we all make mistakes and you have to learn that that's part of the process people will criticize you you get lots of people telling you all the time how they could have done it better that's give you have to learn to bite your tongue or get into fights one or two make a choice uh, i bite my tongue and just keep quiet uh, and and it is a tough thing and it, but you but what you learn is that you do this step by step by step because you have a goal and so i also tell people as an entrepreneur you need to have a philosophy and a philosophy that you really hold to um, why are you doing this you know and sometimes you ask people and they will give you some esoteric answer that they have not thought about that's not that's not 
good. You need to because you're you're going to put your blood and sweat and tears into this, and you need to know why you're doing it. You know, and so and <laughs> and one of the problems becomes nowadays is you know if you listen to CNBC, it seems like the only reason you do it is so you can be on an IPO and they can say, well, here you are, the un- next unicorn, right? That becomes the name of the game. I I think that's not a good philosophy. You need to have something more than that. You know why why you're doing things, and so. But the persistence point is, I can't tell you how important that is. It's uh, it's probably all, everything, you know, because um, there are people who let you down, mistakes that get made, people who criticize you. Sometimes you are in the front of a firing squad with people <laughs> yelling at you. But all of those things are something you just kind of deal with and move on and go for. You bring up this idea of knowing your why, right? Having a purpose. So, um, Will, if I could ask you, what would you say is the purpose that drives the two of you to to get up every day and just keep uh, innovating and and moving forward? Right, yeah. The answer to that is actually embedded in, in also what Joe said, and I'll piggyback off that as well. For me, and I think Joe will concur, that our true north is our patient. It's your patient. It's the number of patients out there that need these medications and they need access to them and they need access to them in a timely fashion. And we need to meet them where they are. So that's the big reason why I get up every day and I work to make Quartet RX the leading technology in oral liquid compounding. Um, in order to do that, though, I, I, I need to know that, number one, I don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. And I think that's why Joe and I complement each other very well. He knows things that I don't, and I know things that he doesn't as well. Um, and so it, to piggyback about, upon what he said is, is you, because of that, you do need to surround yourself with people that know things that you don't to help you meet your goal and to fulfill that unmet need. Um, and like Joe said, never stop. That's good advice. I love it want to ask the corollary and say what's been the biggest challenge you've kind of talked about the importance of persistence what what are some examples of maybe that biggest challenge you feel like you faced for me it was uh, understanding commercialization so as a scientist and an R&D person you can develop a product and you can make it the best it can be but at the end of the day you have to manufacture it Manufacturing is a whole different ballgame. Most manufacturers will want to meet the person who will say to them, wow, I need to make five billion widgets, you know. <laughs> and they're like, oh, great. They meet some guy who goes, well, I want to s- solve needs for Parkinson's patients. And they, they do a quick calculation, how many Parkinson's patients, and they go, wait a minute. You know. <laughs> Commercialization is a big issue. So getting the suppliers who will work with you, Suppliers who work with the first-in-class technology that has a tendency to sometimes stub your toe, you know, which is just part of the game. The ability to flex with you as you learn about your marketplace, um, that's a challenge. One of the things that happened to me was I did not understand that because coming out of big pharma, I was in R&D. The people who did this were in a different department. But also, if you're a Merck manufacturer, you have certain advantages that a small company never has. You know, you call and say, I'm Merck, and they are ready to talk to you, right? When you call and say, PNC Pharma, they go, who, you know, and so. 
So the question of finding that, and I've learned that a very, very hard way about commercialization, how to communicate with those people when you contact them, how to find the person who understands what you're doing, and the person who's able to ride the, the train with you from where you're starting to where you're going. And that's something that I, I if I had, the number of times that I've had sleepless nights, that has been probably one of the major issues to deal with, you know, so. That's good. So COVID-19 has changed everything about our lives, right? I'm sure it's changed things for the two of you as well. So uh, I would love to know uh, what are some of the ways that you've seen um, the pandemic change how you've approached business or the opportunity in the marketplace? Uh, I'd just love to hear about that. So maybe, Will, do you mind uh, going first on that one? No, not at all. Yeah. Um, A lot of our work is face-to-face with uh, institutions, pharmacists. And when the pandemic hit, we could no longer do that. We could no longer travel to see people. Uh, So we really almost had to reinvent how we go about our business. So we became quasi experts in, in trying to detail the technology, but also train a very hands-on technology um, by video and by doing it online. And I think that uh, over the last two years, we became pretty good at doing that, where now really most of our training is done uh, over a Zoom call or a a Teams meeting or something like that. We have very close collaborations with those who use Quartet RX. So it's not not one where we spend two hours training, you know, a group of people on how to use Quartet. We do do that, but then it's a constant back and forth all the time uh, to ensure that, number one, they're gaining efficiencies using the technology and that they're confident that the products that they're making are benefiting their patient population. So it's constant back and forth as well as we're not only doing those formulations that we know, we're continuing create continually creating new formulations for and everything is shared. So within our whole collaborator network, if an organization wants to create a formulation using Quartet, everybody has access to it. That's great. Joe, do you have anything to add regarding the pandemic and how that's changed? Yeah. Um, so the pandemic has, and you know this better than I do, it has caused a lot of crisis with personnel, you know, retaining personnel, training personnel. So for the first time, we are starting to ask the question. So we know our technology incredibly well. We know what to do with it, how to use it, what to, how to get products made efficiently. We are starting to ask the question, how do we maybe sometimes in some cases not sell the technology, but we make available the finished products? So the first time we're starting to explore those concepts and, and see if we can serve pharmacists and their patients through that route more than. So we have, thought, we have started to think of novel ways of doing that. Uh, and the pandemic has also, I have one customer in particular, a collaborator, who has trained one, two, two technicians in quartet, lost them both. And she is, I can see the frustration, you know, she goes through a pretty detailed process and the person walks out and then another detailed process person walks out. The question becomes, wow, maybe we need to see how we can get a person who we lock down and that person then supplies them products. So we are starting to look at that. Uh, the other thing is, we'll mention that and I have to, 
compliment him. The, the job he has done in learning how to train people over the internet and over, over webinars and things is, is really, really helped us tremendously. So, Well, as we get closer to wrapping up, I have a, a couple more questions. The first is, as I'm sitting here, I'm just reminded that we need more pharmacy entrepreneurs like yourselves. We need people to who look for solutions um, to answer some of the questions age old that might be simple if we just took time to stop and pause and think about how we can leverage technology to help. So I'd be curious, and this is more my brain as an educator, how do you guys think we should go about training the next generation of pharmacists to embody this same mindset? of asking questions and finding solutions that can be implemented to better care for our patients. Uh, Will, do you mind yeah. going first? No, not at all. I think it, a lot of it is about creating the appropriate, or I should say the right environment to do that, right? So um, th that involves a lot of things. Number one, answering the why that you're here. What is your true north? And for Joe and I, our true north is our patients, the patients that you serve. Um, creating an environment where the generation of ideas, no matter what they are, is encouraged. And also to create an environment where we can challenge the status quo, where because that's the way we've done it is no longer an appropriate answer to why do we do that. Um, that is also gonna foster the generation of those ideas and create an environment where those ideas can be thought about and operationalized. Um, furthermore, surrounding yourself in that environment with people that are not like yourself, that have different skill sets, different abilities, because you are not going to be able to do this alone. Joe, what do you have to add on this idea of training up new idea generators and entrepreneurs? So I'm going to be a little provocative. So I think for healthcare entrepreneurs, you also need, you need two sectors. You need the people who are in healthcare, but you also need the people who are in business. So if you look at healthcare, there is, okay. So if you develop, say, the latest uh, hoverboard or something, I don't know. You sell it to all the kids and millions of them buy it and they have a good time and you make a lot of money and you're done. That's a different market than when you go, you know, there's a Parkinson's patient need that is limited to Parkinson's patient, but I have a great idea to solve that need. And I'm an entrepreneur in healthcare who would like to make a good living and not, you know, have a decent living, but I'm, but I'm ready to have a modicum of that and do this together. There are lots of those people out there. What they don't have is the support groups from the financial fields who can help them make that happen. So if they come up with an idea and they say, you know what, I'm going to give you a technology that is going to be bought by half a billion people in the world. They have every business student lined up behind them. If they have the other idea, they really do. What would be really nice is if we challenge both sides, I'm now adding to what Will said, to look at those needs, to get the healthcare entrepreneurs who want to do that, who have a goal, and pair them with innovative financial guys who can make that happen. I think that's what we need in healthcare a lot because it's missing. 
very often remember i told you about my manufacturing problems the financial people know how to handle that much better than i do and if i had somebody like that next to me i could do that and i think if we achieve that there are lots of little needs that will get met but lots of little needs pooled together make big changes and that i would challenge people to look at that combination more than anything else okay great i love all those thoughts so thank you well my last question is i'm sure listeners are dying to know how did it get its name why quartz had our x Oh, the Quartet RX. I thought you meant the company name. No. So, okay. Well, we could tell that story too. Okay. So, so uh, I'll tell you, you both of them. Good. So, okay. The company name, I basically, if you read, uh, read our legal name, it's Patients and Consumers Pharmaceutical Company. But there's an apostrophe. The apostrophe is not before the S. It's after the S on Patients and Consumers. So English majors pick that up very fast. It's a possessive. The company is owned by... people we serve so a lot, a lot of times legal people put the s apostrophe before the s and have to correct it and say no it's after the s you know and they say are you sure i said yes i'm absolutely sure it's it's a possessive not you know? so that's how the company was named it's called the patients and consumers from school company quoted rx was very interesting so we were trying to see how to name the company and a gentleman used to work with me before and i we were talking about this and we had a musical bend and we thought you know this has a if you look at the technology right it actually works on a principle that drives the universe so we have what is called planetary mixing you spin the bottles and you spin the plates well that's how the the this milky way is set up you know every planet spins and then the whole milky way, the the galaxy spin so we were kind of riffing one day on that concept and jazz and Yovia. <laughs> so. That's great. I I think it's it's uh not only ironic too that you can actually compound four things at the same time, right? right? right. There so, you go. Right. Oh yes, that's right. It, it ended up uh, <laughs> having a lot of extra uh, meaning there, which is fantastic. Right. I love it. So. Well, um uh, as we end, where can our listeners go to hear a little bit more about Quartetrx and learn about the products? So you go to www.quartetrx.com. and it has uh, a lot of information it also has a contact information so if you ever want to reach us you can do that um and we'll be happy to talk to anybody who has ideas suggestions need needs new information about the technology etc but that's the best place to go to there's a phone number on there Jamie Fallon who works for us will answer that if you ever call and she'll put you in touch with us right away so great well Will and Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um I love these conversations that um we get to have with you guys. Jazzes me up about where our profession's headed and how we can make a difference. So, thanks again for coming to join us uh and hope we can do it again soon. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. You have been listening to Disrupt, a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, Please subscribe and share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening.